Welcome back, folks, to the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Woo! We just had a great time with Chris Preston. He's an author. He's a, he's a philosopher. And we talked about the moral and ethical reasons to go dark sky. That's right, folks. So this is a tight one, right up my alley. Greg was kind of a little bit quiet. He jumped in a little bit at the end. But hey, for lighting dorks out there, there are reasons to go dark sky, and you should listen to Chris Preston real quick here on the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. But before we get into that, we got to go to Kurtz on Lighting, Greg. Go to K-U-R-T-Z-O-N.com, baby. That's Kurtzon.com specification grade. So let's talk about, first of all, the title of this show. What are you calling this? The what? Lighting the Anthropocene. Okay, and the Anthropocene means what exactly? The era of human influence on Earth. Okay, and how long has a human been on Earth? Uh, well, it depends on whether when you consider Homo erectus to be man. So that's Just give me a 50, rough number. 50,000 to 500,000 years ago. All right, well, Kurtzon's been in business for over 100 years. Woo! <laughs> so to think K- about that in the lighting terms. <laughs> so they, they're a long-term company, been around a long time. Uh, they have a lot of exciting new things coming out. You got to check out their website. I'm looking at a few different things in there. I'm sure Scotty will pull up the main site here, but they have uh, tunable lighting, which is really something that I think is going to start taking off. The more discussions we have, I'm starting to feel more like there's something to that, you know, with the circadian rhythm and everything. And Kurtzon is diving into that with their specification grade fixtures. So make sure you check those guys out. Long time lighting company. Not many companies in this industry can say they've been around over 100 years. Never mind 100 years, been, over, been around over a million hours. Mm. So go to K-U-R-T-Z-O-N.com, baby. That's Kurtzon.com, specification grade, a million hours in the game, son. That's right, K-U-R-T-Z-O-N.com. And, of course, National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, where I got my philosophy degree. Folks, <laughs> just kidding. Right now, we got Chris Preston on the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Welcome to the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast, Chris Preston. Thanks for having me. No problem. Say hi to Greg Garrick. Hello, Greg. Hi, Chris. Thanks for being on. So tell us, we, I know we just talked momentarily ago, but tell us um, uh, who you are and what you do. I'm a professor of philosophy. I work at a university uh, down in Missoula, Montana. Um, I also write more public stuff, you know, I write academic stuff, articles, the professionals happy in philosophy, but I also write more public stuff about how we're changing the world and what we're doing, the natural world and the transition from nature to artifact. So um, I'm sort of a, a bridge between academics and public topics. Okay. So I have a question for you. I read one of your articles on the smithsonian.com, whatever that organization is. Why is, are the changes that humans, that we humans are doing to the world and what's happening now, why, are we, why do we consider those separate from evolution? So I wrote this book called The Synthetic Age and what I was trying to get at was really you know, the question you're asking, um, what is it about what humans do that is different? And I think the standard answer that a philosopher would give uh, is that humans have rational minds, which allow us to plan, to imagine a future, and to put in place steps or mechanisms that will get us to that future. So there's, there's a sense in which humans, um, though we 
come out of nature, you know, we're as natural evolutionarily as anything else. When we come out of nature, we've sort of lifted ourselves up a little bit into a different plane where we can make different types of decisions about creating a different type of world. And I think that sets us apart in some regards. That strikes me as a little bit of egotistical. Um, <laughs> so, like, it, 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 it's almost like an argument for the Adam and Eve story. You know, we ate the apple, and so now we're like unto God, right? So now we bear some sort of responsibility towards the planet that other species don't have. So if one species makes another species extinct, or if hunter-gatherers overhunted mammoths on the Arctic plain 5,000 years ago or whatever it was, they're not responsible for that. But we humans today, who have eaten Eve's apple, who are like unto God, can sit back and look at the world and say, we're not evolving the right way we should. Yeah, we're a little different. I think, you know, I don't think it's hard to see that we're a little different. Look at us here. We're all sitting here communicating from different parts of the continent. We've got our headsets on. Uh, you know, we're using these sort of uh, internet channels of communication. I mean, are there other species that do that? I doubt it. Um, are there other species that have satellites up in the sky that can look down and see the planet as a whole uh, and can detect changes by looking through the fossil record uh, and say, well, look, this was happening 15 million years ago. This is happening now. It just doesn't seem like there's other species that have that kind of overview. And so I think, you know, I, I think the hypothesis you put out there, it's actually, it's correct. You know, we do have a different kind of obligation. We are a different kind of species. There's a book uh, by a guy, a guy called Mark Linus in this field, and he just calls it simply the God species. And that's uh, really sort of uh, a summary statement of what we're talking about. Humans are a little different, and with that comes a little more responsibility. Well, modern humans, like the humans that are around today, uh, maybe the humans that emerged a hundred years ago, say, or there was. Um, I read a. I read um, an article that. Gosh, I can't remember the name of the. Uh, his son was very famous atheist. Um, can't remember his name. Anyway, he the the Queen Victoria commissioned him to see if the seas could ever be overfished, and he determined that humans could never overfish the seas of the world because there's just too many fish in the seas, right? So I I think that this Anthropocene um, argument, I think we're talking about really maybe when we became truly self-aware of the uh, the world we live in, maybe the moon landing. Um, I think you wrote that in your article. I read your article and I, I was kind of like, wow. So I think it's only very recently that we've actually looked at ourselves as not obliged to overcome Mother Nature, but as really the world as a garden to be cultivated in some sense. Yeah, I think you're right in saying it's pretty recent. I mean, some people actually put their finger on that first view of the Earth from space. You're turning around, taking an image of the planet uh, and seeing it there, just sort of alone, again, in 
the blackness of the solar system. Um, they call it the overview effect. And, you know, it has an effect. You sort of see what we are, where we live, what's at stake. And, you know, suddenly the responsibilities become a little bigger. People don't, want, to... the... oh, People yeah. don't want this responsibility, Chris. They don't want it. You're, you're totally right. I mean, it's tough, isn't it? It'd be much easier to sort of act like the bison on the plains and just keep kind of doing away at the grasses and forbs and reproducing and just living our lives. Um, we could do that. It would come with a cost. And would that be the end of days? I don't know what, what the phrase is that one would use. Um, you know, I, I, there is this phrase, the Anthropocene, you know, the human age. There, there is this other phrase, the synthetic age. Uh, other authors have talked about the end of nature. Um, certainly it's the end of something. It's a different epoch, a different era. I think, I think nature has another opinion, actually. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that nature would, would laugh if it could at that hubris. You know, it's funny because the word pride, the pride comes before the fall. I think what people really mean is hubris comes before the fall in a sense. Yeah, Greg, you're up. Sorry, I, I love the I love your yeah. kind of asked. <laughs> no, that's good, good. I want to just for the lighting dorks like me out there, just make sure we clarify a couple of things. So you, you're talking urbanization and the spread of artificial light are transforming all of our species. That's what it says in your title here. Now, you said artificial light. You're not necessarily pointing out LEDs versus incandescent. You actually wrote incandescent in here. So you're not talking that it's getting worse because of LEDs or anything. You're just talking artificial light in general. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm just talking about the spread of light. And, and let me be clear that that's, that's sort of a, a piece of the argument. There's, there's a whole lot of other yes. pieces uh, to do with biotechnology. You, you know what's interesting? We, we interviewed another guy in our podcast, um, uh, Dr. Chris. can't remember his last name. He's in Germany, but he's a Canadian. Anyway, he was talking about how um, the satellites actually can't see light above a certain Kelvin temperature. Okay, so the photos of light at night are less any of the metal halide and LED light. Now, I, this stands to be corrected because I'm not 100% sure, but I know that he said it cannot see light above 4,000 Kelvin or whatever it is. It only mm -hmm. sees light in this range. So that means it's only seeing HPS lighting, okay, high-pressure sodium, which is the yellow common street light, right? So in fact, the problem based on picture view may actually be well worse than the than what those pictures are indicating in terms of um, lighting at night. And, and dark sky has become a very um, special issue to me uh, simply because, you know, being in the, I'm, I'm not a scientist. I'm, I'm, I sell light bulbs every day. I'm just a light bulb salesman. But I, there's something about lighting, artificial lighting or electric lighting that is fundamental to the, human development to this point it's it's the greatest productivity tool we've ever created um uh second only to the maybe the toilet and modern plumbing in terms of allowing humans to live in these cities that you're talking about i mean the first thing we couldn't live without would be toilets and plumbing and will ability to get rid of our waste we'd all die of you know all sorts of crazy diseases but without artificial lighting um we're, we can't do any of the things we want to do now and We've never, until very, very recently, 
It's almost like the last thing we've considered is that, like the idea that light pollution was like in quotations in a sense, Chris. You know, it, like now I, I made a point with, we were talking to Jane Slade. I made the point that light pollution could actually be declared hazardous waste by the EPA if what we're saying is correct. How serious is the light pollution problem? I think um, just to sort of get into what you're saying from, from a couple of steps back, um, a lot of the technologies that people are starting to be concerned about um, start off as a good idea. I mean, you know, the, the classic the sort of elephant in the room would be greenhouse gases and, and climate change. I mean, there's nothing wrong with trying to stay warm, trying to produce energy, trying to increase your standard of living. Um, it starts off as a good idea. Uh, and for a long time, it's a good idea. Uh, and then there comes a point where you say, okay, maybe there's effects here that we weren't anticipating. Maybe there's effects that we couldn't have known about. Before. But now that we do, we have to start thinking about it a little differently. So I think uh, light and light pollution would fall into that category, that the intent is entirely praiseworthy. Um, the benefits, the increases in productivity, increases in hygiene uh, that follow from having good illumination, no problem at all. Security, uh, security as well. Security as well, for sure. Um, but then I think what a, what a philosopher should do with the help of scientists is sort of step back and say, okay, all of this has been good, but then have we crossed the threshold where we're having more effects than we thought we were, there's more to think about than we thought there was to think about. And perhaps we need to start doing things a little bit differently. And, and that's what the, the sort of dark skies movement, uh, I think, is about. And, and the concern about light pollution is that though light is good in many circumstances, is there a threshold that can be crossed? And are there ways to do things a little bit differently? Now, do you think it's getting worse or is it getting, are we starting to get better because of the awareness? Before when there was lighting, artificial light, we just put it everywhere. Now people are, and we still are doing that, but people are starting to be aware of it and making dark sky compliant. There's a dark sky preserve now in Idaho, I think it is. Um, from all that standpoint, is it going to, is it starting to get better? Or I know it's hard to tell because it's relatively new, but what is your thought on that? Yeah, I mean, I'd say there's sort of two countervailing tendencies here, aren't there? There's, there's the increase in awareness and mm -hmm. the desire to make places deliberately darker or, <clears throat> or keep them darker. But then there's also the increase in the availability of electricity and the increase in human population. So those two tendencies, again, pull against each other. Uh, and uh, I think it's impossible to say for sure, you know, without doing some sort of global kind of inventory um, but it certainly seems uh, that the amount of darkness on the planet is diminishing, even though uh, in certain places people are becoming aware of it. So I think the problem is ongoing. I don't think it's solved. Uh, I think it's going to continue to be an issue. These, there's like, so what, what you're saying is there's like a tension between our awareness of the impact of multiple uh, types of pollution and the impact of continual economic growth, the spread of electricity, the um, 
cost of um, dark sky versus non-dark sky and all these all these sorts of I mean you can make a light you know the idea of um, <laughs> everybody in Canada I live in Canada everybody has a furnace in their home it's basically a fire right and they're heating their homes and there's an argument that Canada is not really a place to live for homo sapiens actually you know um, you can't live you can't live the life we're living without without fossil fuels in Canada or Minnesota where Greg is, it's not possible. It's not even conceivable at this point. Um, so how do we, if we're, and I want to get this somehow to the counter out at the, at, at, of my business here where people are walking in and my uh, people are selling them light fixtures and so on, if there's something we can do. Um, how do we take on this responsibility without, negativity and without guilt i think uh doing it without guilt is, is perhaps not possible um you know the three of us sitting here uh are probably in the, the sort of top uh five percent maybe the top three percent of, of privileged people in the world you know we, we we our homes are heated by furnaces we have no problem keeping the lights on uh, we're well fed uh, we're, we're wired, we're connected, uh, we have it pretty good. Um, there's a cost to having it that good, uh, those of us that do. Uh, we are having a disproportionate impact uh, on planetary systems. So the idea that we can live without guilt, I mean, you know, my... Don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not trying to sort of suggest to, to anybody who listens to this podcast that we should all feel horrible about, about who we are. But, but we should all feel aware that the impacts we create are disproportionate to the impacts that somebody creates in the Sudan or in Syria or in Borneo. Uh, and so that brings a certain responsibility to us. A certain responsibility falls on our shoulders to think about what sorts of increases in quality of life we need, uh, which ones we can do without, or when we do change things about our lives, I'm talking about people in, in the richer countries, and we do uh, make changes to our lives, can we do those in ways that do not increase the burden on those living in other parts of the planet uh, who are not as insulated from some of the effects that we're talking about here is that so, not, um, is that not the nouveau white man's burden though like it, it sounds it like burden. it sounds very similar to like this idea that and and, and i'm going to get my point across the right way obviously not everybody living in canada is white or whatever but or the first world country's burden to uh, tackle these problems and then bring the light of energy efficiency technology to the world. It's, <laughs> it sounds very similar. Sorry about that. It sounds very similar to these other ideas that yes, we're guilty of this, but here's the solution. Or here, I, I I'm a little bit suspicious of that train of thought you had there, Chris. Do you understand yeah, no, what I'm I, saying? I you understand what I'm saying? No, I do. I do. I do. I think we're running a couple of things here together. Um, so what you described as the white man's burden would be... Uh, nouveau. You know, so what's the obligation? Nouveau. 
nouveau, like a new burden or a new burden for, for okay. uh, you know, that's similar to that, right? Like bringing the light of the this new understanding that humans have an impact on the world. We need to bring this light, this new light out to the world, or wrong word baby, for this, but new intelligence out to the world and make sure that we change our ways and that they adopt these new ways that we dictate to them or something like that. It sounds that way, does it not? No, that, that's not actually where, where I'm intending to go with this. I mean, let's separate two things. Let's, let's keep two things separate. One thing would be, well, what sorts of technologies should the developed world export? Uh, what sorts of uh, ways of life are desirable? Um, let's keep that on one side. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay. On the other side is in the developed world, with all of the advantages, the abundance of cheap energy, uh, that we have, what are our obligations within that lifestyle? And what I am saying is we have some obligations within that lifestyle to think about the international effects, the global effects of what we're doing. I don't think so everybody I, you know, agrees not, with not, you. I don't think everybody agrees with that. And, I, you know, that there is, I don't know if obligation is the right word, Chris. Um because it, obligation implies that you know what the solution to the problem is. Uh, obligation, I think, in this case, implies that you know there's consequences to what you're doing. Or that you give, or either so, that there's something you should do as a response to that obligation. Like obligation implies action, right? It implies distinct action forthcoming the realization of the obligation. So if one realizes that one has an obligation and accepts it, then one must do something about that obligation. Correct? Um, yeah, but we're getting kind of deep into the ethics, which is good because I'm an ethicist. Um, I, I think there's... Like there's I'm unwilling, I'm unwilling to accept the obligation. I'm, 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 I'm willing to be enlightened. Yeah. I'm willing to be enlightened, but I'm not willing to accept obligations to somebody in Borneo. Like I, I just I, I, I have a difficult time with that. And you know, I'm talking and, and we break it down. We go from ethical in my head to moral perhaps. Um, then that more that moral obligation, so ethical ethics we decide, we, we achieve new morality, and then we make laws. Right? So I'm not no I'm not so sure if I'm willing to accept an obligation, although I am willing to be enlightened. Yeah. I think, I think it's always worth um, sort of asking oneself, are there consequences from what I'm doing that are negative for people elsewhere? And if there are, we should feel some, and this is why I do use the word obligation, we should feel some obligation to figure out if we can fix them. And we're not always going to know how to fix them. Um, and I think in the case of... Uh, climate change, uh, it's not easy and it's not obvious how to fix things right away. You can talk about a direction. You can talk about making moves towards a particular type of future. But it's not always clear that there's things that you can do this instant which are going to solve the problem. But that doesn't free you from some sort of burden, some sort of obligation, at least the obligation to think about whether there's a way to do things differently. And... Uh, you know, we are talking pretty broadly here. You know, we've sort of backed away a little bit from light 
yeah, yeah, yeah. itself towards sort of larger issues of, of ethics and morality. So I hope you're okay. Oh no, I'm I'm quite happy. I'm, this, uh, you know, yeah. I'm quite happy to be here. No, no, I'm I'm actually fascinated yeah. by this, and and we'll 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 try to we'll try to loop it back to the order desk um, and that. But and we've interviewed other scientists, uh, other futurists, and that sort of thing about you know, artificial intelligence and so on. But so you you wrote you wrote an article in the Smithsonian. I saw it, and and you know it didn't prescribe any solutions, but it pointed out clear problems that species are actually evolving to accommodate the persistence of light at night within cities and in proximity to cities, right? So wouldn't that indicate that we're just part, this is all just part of evolution in a sense, and that this, you know, may peak and crash and then something else will happen and that we actually have no other, no obligation but to just keep doing what we're doing because the the earth will sort itself out self itself out and that we you know evolution i you know i i've read a couple of books by jared diamond and he talks about the evolution of languages from pigeon to creole and how these languages evolved so even though when you 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 obliterate an old language a new language emerges and there's a sort of phoenix idea to, in evolution that i'm somewhat suspicious of scientists that that and and I'm not I'm, I don't know if suspicion is the right word, but that looking at it as if we can separate ourselves from this, Chris, are we yeah. not innately in that evolution at all times? And there's really not much we can do. Even what we try to do, every time we try to do something to help, every time it only makes things worse. So I think uh, you can take like a, a, sh- a shorter term, like a human scale perspective. We can take a planetary scale perspective. So let's let's look at the planetary scale one first. On a planetary scale, we're stuck within those evolutionary forces. And long after we're gone, long after Homo sapiens disappeared off the face of the planet, the planet will still be evolving new species. It'll still be changing. It'll still be subject to volcanic forces, hydrological forces, fire and ice. So on, on that scale, we're in there and we can't do anything about it and we shouldn't pretend that we can be outside of it. Let's change the scale now. Let's come down to the scale of, let's say, uh, agriculture, human history since agriculture. So we're talking about, you know, seven, eight, nine thousand years, something like that. Sure. Within that scale, uh, it's less clear that we're just one ordinary uh, piece of the pie here. Uh, and it looks a little bit more like we are different in some way. We have been able to change things in ways that other species haven't. And we've been able to do it consciously. So uh, bacteria, for example, have changed the atmosphere of the planet before. Um, without uh, the actions of archaeobacteria, we wouldn't have oxygen to breathe, right? Mm-hmm. But they didn't do it consciously. We now can do this consciously within this period. Uh, and you know, you can put the start date kind of where you want agriculture, the scientific revolution, the biotech revolution, maybe. Uh, within this, this sort of narrow period, we've started to do things a little differently. And if we want the planet to remain at 
least somewhat stable, somewhat similar to how it has been in that last 10,000 years or so. 10,000 years is, is the sort of stable Holocene period in which uh, everything uh, notable in, in, sort of in human history has, has occurred. We want to keep the planet so roughly within those parameters. We have to look at what we're doing and say, all right, have we been making some wrong turns? Are there things we can do? So, you know, hopefully that by, by splitting those sort of two periods up, you can, you can see that on a planetary uh, geological timescale, yeah, we're totally the same as everything else, but on a narrow timescale, I think we're different. I think what you're saying, if, if I may um, be so bold as to put this forward and have you, be, have you correct me or not, if we wish to make to continue to make the planet habitable for humans and other species that exist with us at this point in time, then we have to make changes to how we go about existing. And that is not conducive with our current lifestyle. Yes, and I, I think I'm not the only person who would say that. I mean, you know, I join uh, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people who would call themselves uh, environmentalists or, you know, people concerned about quality of life uh, that, that we're living, people who are concerned about biodiversity, uh, people who are concerned about global justice. There are hundreds of millions of people who think that uh, we need to adjust, we need to make a course correction uh, in order to secure some of these goods uh, that, that we have been used to in the past. But those are, those are Lady Macbeths sleepwalking, washing their hands, Chris. Are they not? I, I'm not clear on what the illusion is here. Well, I mean, you know, it, it takes a certain amount of wealth to come to the conclusion that the wealth that you live in is unethical. It's like being a vegan it is the um, privilege of one who's socially endowed with wealth and privilege and education, right? A hunter-gatherer would never choose to be a, a vegan, you know? A hunter-gatherer is never going to choose to be an environmentalist. It's like, it's almost as if this mindset is a product of the problem. I mean, I think you're right about that. I, I wouldn't say that the obligation falls equally on all people across the planet. I mean, you know, I'm not going to go to somebody who's sort of barely got a roof over their head and no electricity and say, don't you dare emit any carbon. I mean, don't you dare put that uh, light bulb up in your, mm. your um The obligation does not fall equally. So there's, um, there's, and, a, there's a tension between this... See, like, I believe that, I believe that in 2020, 2020, first time I've said that on the show, um, I believe that in 2020, that all in Canada, all humans have the right to energy and the internet, along with their other rights, right? And those rights are kind of giving them energy and giving them an, the internet perpetuates our current environmental conundrum. I wouldn't dream of taking energy and internet away from anybody who has it currently. 
but I think one can say other ways to produce energy that don't come with the harms that we're seeing at the moment. Are you okay with other ways? Are you okay with nuclear? Yeah, it's interesting. You know what? Twenty years ago, uh, nuclear was sort of the environmentalist sort of uh, whipping post. There, you know, sure. it was like the worst type of energy. Things have changed. Uh, things have changed. The, the climate crisis has become more vivid, uh, more imminent, uh, and so nuclear energy is starting to look different. It's starting to look less like one of the central problems, uh, and potentially. Uh, some sort of a, at least a stopgap measure, if not a more permanent measure, uh, to provide a solution. So I do think things change. You know, I think you got to sort of stay on your toes here, uh, what the ethical obligations are. So, so um, there are, you know, when you look at different jurisdictions, there are clean energy jurisdictions, and there are, and depending on how you draw those lines on a map, there are clean energy jurisdictions, and there are dirty energy jurisdictions. But those don't always reflect the branding of those places, okay? So a perfect example is like Germany, okay, versus on uh, versus Canada, okay? So the entire eastern portion of Canada is completely powered by clean energy, 90%, okay, is hydroelectric and nuclear, okay? Whereas Germany burns coal. Okay, to produce their electricity. So we have this problem, but they have lots of small time solar panels all over Germany that, you know, add about 1% to their total grid power. But in Canada, it's not, well, take Alberta out of the picture. If you go Eastern Canada, it's all clean energy. Um, How do we then, who is going to judge? And we're going to get this back to lighting in one second, Greg. (laughs) Who is going to be the judge and arbitrator? of who is the most woke area or who is the most involved, who is progressing the most on this stage. And I think that's where everything starts to break down is when we introduce transnational judges or some sort of trans jurisdictional judges that's, well, we have, Germany has the most solar panels and Ontario has the least solar panels or whatever, but, Ontario's energy is clean. Like, who is actually going to state what what body, what people, what philosopher king is going to point to who's actually doing the best and who isn't? I don't think it's impossible to know what a country's energy mix is. I mean, most countries have uh, government figures that that will tell you exactly how much wind power is being produced in Germany, how much solar power, how much coal. Um, I agree with you that... uh, it's very common for misinformation to be uh, spread uh, about what a particular country is doing, how clean or how dirty its fuel sources are. And there's sort of outdated perceptions about what a particular country is doing when it might actually have changed, might have changed very rapidly. I mean, the UK's uh, almost complete elimination of coal in the last 10 years. I mean, that's, that's sort of really changed the equation since about 2005. Um, so despite the misinformation, there are some sort of reliable figures uh, here that people can stand up and say about their country, we are doing this. Uh, and despite what you may think, we are not doing this. Uh, so I don't see the problem as, of misinformation as, as, as 
uh, worrisome, perhaps, as you're suggesting. I think. Uh, well, it's not. Ontario, you can go to the IESO.com or .org. I can't remember what it was. And you can see the real-time energy production right now, uh, what the mix is between nuclear, hydro, gas, and, and uh, wind and solar. You can see it in real time. It's not, it's not hidden from anybody. Um, so, but my, my question becomes, can Canada or let's say Britain or any of these, so can we do anything positive if China, the United States and the European Union don't make an agreement? Is there anything worthwhile to do? Yeah, I mean, we're back on ethics now. Um, you know, and you, you can think about an ethical obligation in, in two ways. You can think about it as, if I do this, is it going to get me the global result that I want or not? That's one way to think about it. The other way to think about it is, do I have an obligation to do this regardless of what its effect is? So I may not solve the world's problems by doing this, but perhaps I should be doing it. That's a different ethical framework. You know, we have long, fancy words for those in, in ethics to do with deontology versus utilitarian thinking. But mm. forget the long words. Uh, it's either base your action on whether it achieves the result or base your action on whether it's the right thing to do. That's a perfect a case time. To be made. Yeah, there's a, that's a perfect time to talk about lighting now, okay? Because okay. in the lighting business, okay, to sell dark sky friendly lights, okay, so dark sky compliance costs more, okay? So when you break it down to the point at which people sell lighting to the end user, Greg, how many times mm -hmm. have you sold that traditional wall pack, which is not dark sky friendly versus one that is simply because the customer wants to have the lowest price? Often, more often than the other way around. You know, that, that's what happens is their, their, their awareness is starting to get there, but it's hard to sell people on that and to charge them extra for it. So they can't justify it. You need some stats. <laughs> so Chris, how do, we, how do we get around this economic growth versus doing the right thing? If I do the right thing, I lose in the lighting game. If I do the wrong thing, I win in the lighting game, but I'm not achieving these, um, what's the, the, the new ethics of the enlightened class or whatever, however you want to say it. Like you're saying, we have to make a choice. I don't know if I want to make that choice, Chris. I want my lighting company to continue to grow. Yeah. So, you know, we're into sort of issues of political science and I'm not, I'm not by any means an expert here, but... It's fun to talk about this stuff. So, you know, yeah, sure. We're on a podcast. Um, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, there's like a there's sort of a balance between how much you're going to say, well, let's wait for the consumer to want to choose this. You know, let, let's wait for the consumer to say, this is worth my investment. I'm going to do it. Versus uh, having regulations through at the national level, which force everybody's hand in certain ways. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in the United States, as you know, recently, uh, the uh, ban on the manufacture of incandescent bulbs has been taken away. Uh, so, you know, the idea there is, is that we're not going to force people's hands by saying uh, only more efficient bulbs can be made. We're going to put that choice back into consumers' hands. 
this is a political issue. It's a political position, uh, one that champions sort of individual freedom over everything else. Now, I don't blame the consumer who, who goes to Greg and, and says, look, it would be lovely to spend twice the amount and, and get this highly eco-groovy bulb, but I, it's just not something I'm going to prioritize in my budget. Uh, I mean, that is a perfectly rational thing to do. Uh, I don't have an electric car sitting outside my house right now. Because I How dare you? How dare you, you <laughs> hypocrite? You're a hypocrite. <laughs> I'm with you. I can't afford it right. I can't afford it right now. But if, if the government were to force people's hands a little bit on this, and so in this case, what forcing the hand means is uh, providing a, a tax break for electric car manufacturers, providing a tax break for consumers. Uh, you know, in this case, uh, if they were to do that, um, you know, that electric car might be sitting out there sooner than otherwise. So that there's a sort of, there's a political question in political science here about uh, how much consumer freedom do you want? How much direction of the economy do you want? Uh, and, I, you know, I, I think what, what we see is that you need like a little bit of both, like a little bit of nudging, uh, a little bit of, of sort of incentives through uh, tax reductions or tax credits. Uh, that can hit, help people to do the right thing. And, and I know, you know, we can argue back and forth about how much is too much sort of central direction and, and how much is not enough. That, that's sort of the, the fun discussion in politics, I guess. So to, to address all our lighting group that's listening to this right now, I would say that the DOE, DOE's regulations were crude, the ones they rolled back, and they could be much more precise and as lighting distributors, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, who is who we represent when we on this show, um, we could help them make very precise laws about which lamps could be eliminated right away of incandescent and halogen, and which ones should be kept because those applications can't be filled by uh, you know LED and and other energy emerging energy efficient lighting technologies. Um, but you know, I think that. Specifically, the dark sky issue um, is so simple to solve through regulation. Like for me, as a lighting distributor who sells lighting on the counter with 25 other lighting stores within a 15-minute walk of my location, plus Home Depot, plus Costco, and all these other places, it has to be regulation because there's, you know, the everything is going to default back to the lowest price when the consumer walks in and pulls out their debit card or they, yeah. especially when you're you know putting contractors in between the end user so you can't you're not actually speaking to the end user about the impacts of this right it absolutely the dark sky issue absolutely has to be through government regulation on um, whether that's at the state level or the federal level or the municipal level or whatever level of government it is it, and it would be such a simple thing to solve. It really would. It, it's not a big problem. And if you ask lighting distributors um, that are members of our association, how, hey, how could you solve the dark sky issue? Well, not everything needs to be lit up like a prison yard, except the prison yard, right? <laughs> like a prison yard needs to be lit up like a prison yard, right? But everything else, we can definitely, you know, do a ton of different things just by getting our heads out of the box of what an outdoor light looks like, Greg. That's right. Yeah, I still see too many places that are way overlit. So I think it starts there. But regulation, 
I think needs to happen to some degree to, to get us all on the same page with it. It's not that hard. Just to say you can you can't make a wall pack or sell a wall pack that yeah, he doesn't sky. Chris doesn't know what a wall pack is. Yeah. But every letting yeah, yeah. distributor listening to this is gonna go, Yeah, wall packs are pretty dumb if you wanna get rid of if you wanna solve dark sky issues. Maybe just disallow the wall pack. That's a type of fixture that has light output at I would say, I don't know, hundred and thirty degrees coming out of it. So fifty percent of the light goes straight up. And 50% of the mm -hmm. light goes straight down. And so when you're driving down the highway and you have that, like those beams of light coming off a building and you're like, man, that's really bright and glary. Those are wall packs all day yeah. long, right? Mm -hmm. So if you just eliminated the wall pack as a functional form factor in the lighting industry, you'd probably solve about 40 to 70% of all dark sky issues. Mm -hmm. Right what's there. The barriers to what's the barriers to eliminating the wall pack? Customer, consumer, consumer perception. So we've had wall packs for 70 years or 60 years, okay? So when you're retrofitting from traditional legacy technologies to LED, consumers are like, I want it to look the same as it looked before and do the same thing it did before, except I want it to be LED. And the reality is, is that we want to cut off, it's actually called a cutoff reflector, or a cutoff accessory where you actually put it on top of the wall pack and it's like a, sh it's like a, a lens, a shield that stops all the uplight and re-reflects the uplight back down. Okay. Sounds pretty sensible. Yeah. That's 15 bucks on every fixture. Yeah. What, what is it, Greg? 20 bucks for? Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Something like that. that but that yeah. makes or break deals all day long. And in fact, you could just get rid of all the accessory nonsense and all that stuff by saying you can't make that fixture anymore, actually. And not only that, though, but all those fixtures in five years have to be off all the buildings in, in the city of Toronto, the province of Ontario, the country of Canada, the United States of America, Missouri, wherever you want. And you would eliminate tons of dark sky issues. Tons. And you create yeah. a lot of business for Premier Lighting and Atlas Lighting. Boom! Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. We have this thing in, in ethics uh, about, all right, what's a bad argument? And one of the answers to what's a bad argument is, well, an appeal to what you've always done is a bad argument. Um, you can never say the right thing is, well, the thing that we've always done. <laughs> because the thing you've always done might be, sure, it might be something horrible. Uh, so, like, like, like you know, uh, engaging casual sex without a condom. How's that for a thing people have done for centuries that maybe <laughs> they shouldn't do anymore? Right? I mean, you can get really, not, I mean, I'm being ridiculous here on the show, but there's things that are obvious, very, very obvious that we can do, Chris, that if the right questions were asked and the right people were at the table, that would change the conversation immediately. Get rid of the wall pack. Get rid of the cobra head. Greg, what other, what other fixtures are out there that are, that are given? There's floods. I mean, certain floods that, you know, you can tilt them any angle. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I there's mean, like, there's a lot of you can, you can pick off a couple of five things and, and in 25 years, because LEDs actually burn out a lot quicker than the life cycle of an LED fixture is actually a lot shorter than a legacy LED fixture. You'd actually eliminate all these problems within 15 years, Chris. If the right people were at the table um, saying, hey, you want to solve uh, this problem? Very simple. Get rid of these five fixtures. Disallow this me mechanical form factor to be manufactured in the lighting industry. And you solve all the dark side issues.
Well, not all of them, but I mean, there's like building, um, you know, uplight on buildings and all this kind of stuff would be a different situation. But majority of the suburbia is wall packs. That's what it is. The, the mat, it's very, it would be a simple problem to solve. But there's no doubt that we are creatures of habit. We are like our, our brains channel. We have these neuronal connections. And once they're established, we like those connections. And so again and again, we do the same thing. And, you know, perhaps what it takes is sort of some, some conversations some uh, demonstration that a, a particular product is actually a better uh, type of product, uh, that it doesn't have the bad effects that, that people are complaining about, to slowly kind of shift those connections where somebody can say, hey, I'm going to look for something that isn't a wall hack. I'm going to look for something that has a solution to this problem. Um, and, you know, that, that's sort of a combination of, of having conversations like this, having uh, developers of a technology be really good, showing why that new technology is better, uh, having government come and sort of nudge you a little bit uh, with regulations or incentives. It's sort of a combination of factors uh, that result in the desirable changes. We, it's interesting. I, I do a bunch of different shows, and I, I read your article in the Smithsonian about an hour ago when I was having lunch, and I thought, man, this is going to be a fun one because I, I actually, uh, if I had it, if I had it all to do over again, I might be a philosopher. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know the if it pays for questions. I don't know if it pays. Oh, uh, pays hard. Pays well, hard. you know what pays you pay hard. me, Mike. There you go. <laughs> I did not land at one of the big philosophy firms downtown. There you go, yeah. Oh, you should look for one of those. I know, right? <laughs> so, so hey, so who are, your, who are some of your favorite authors, Chris? Like, you like Yuval Harari, that Harari guy, like Jared Diamond? Like, who, is, who would you consider, yeah, you know, to be? I like, I like all those like all those folks, um, I mean, you know, part of it is is emotional. You know, like this stuff has to sort of it has to hit you in a way where you go, oh, that that matters to me. Um, you know, there's some some beautiful writers who can sort of make these issues come alive. Um, people like Terry Tempest Williams uh, is a good one. Um, I like uh, Paul Kings North. He's a British author, uh, and uh, there's someone called Gaia Ince. She's a, a British author, author, wrote something called Adventures in the Anthropocene. Um, you know, the, the, the conversation we've had today is sort of at the, the junction of, you know, ethics, technology, policy. Uh, and, you know, th those are some sort of big issues. And so any author that can get people emotionally invested in that, I, I would read anyone who can do that. I think the solution to these problems, Chris, is bringing together of the get a grip on lighting podcast with people like you and getting the message out there that the problem is not solvable through awareness. Like that message needs to get out there that you're not going to solve this wall pack issue through awareness. You have to do it through regulation. How do you know that? Because Greg and I sell light bulbs every day, and we are also the management company which runs the National Association of everybody who does what we do every day. And we know that we're never going to stop doing this unless we're forced to do it. Like, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Awareness is never going to get there. You might get, you know, do you know how difficult it is to get someone to pay? Let's say the job is $30,000. $30, 
To get them to pay $34,000 so it's dark ice friendly is almost impossible. Almost yeah. impossible. And I'm the greatest lighting salesman in the business, maybe <laughs> next to that guy, but maybe not. Maybe I'm better than him. I don't know. And, then, and if there's anybody is. better than us, we know who those guys are and we drink beers with them all the time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. And I can't yeah, do nice. it. I can't do it. So who's going to do sort it? Of complaint. I mean, what, what you're saying, it taps into this complaint that people in, in my field are real worried about right now. It's like, why is the burden always put on the consumer? Oh, you got to be a better consumer. you got to be more moral. you got to make better decisions. Uh, it's, that's unfair. You know, it's, you're not going to do that. If you've got a budget that you, you're trying to sort of stick with, you're not going to do that. But if your hand is forced, okay, your hand is forced, it's forced. And if you can get an incentive to do it as well, that's even better. There's almost mm -hmm. like no sense that like there's no it's interesting because we're all in this anthropocene trap everybody talking about the anthropocene is a part of the problem it's it's lady macbeth washing her hands sleepwalking that's how i always say whenever i meet like an environmentalist that's talking tough and being super negative and talking down like the best thing that could happen is if there're just no humans on the earth at all like these kind of people that you run into every now and then they're just sleepwalking lady macbeths that's it you know, it's like, you, what are you talking about? The fact that you even know about this is because of all the gas being pumped out of the ground and heating the home and uh, creating the University yeah. of Toronto or wherever else you went to that you learned this, right? So there's this sense that, oh, and all these horrible consumers and they don't know what they're doing. And if people just were more like me, that, I just hate that stuff. The government has a responsibility to say, where can we get the knowledge we need to make the changes we need? And how do we implement those changes in a structured fashion so not every consumer needs to know everything about lighting? Yeah. Like, they don't care, actually. You know, yeah. they, they don't really care that much, Chris, about the lighting on the back of their factory and about, you know, and in quotations, Chris Preston's stupid article in the Smithsonian, that building looks great in that picture, actually, Chris. I love the way that building yeah. looks. You know what I'm saying? I think it looks awesome. <laughs> no, but honestly, honestly, though, in all, in all seriousness, there is a sense that we, the government, the only way to do this is for the government to bring some stakeholders to the table that know what the hell they're talking about and make very precise regulations that do not, that yes, limit customer choice to a certain extent, but only to the extent that it's, that the, the, the non, what, what is the right word? The um, unintended consequences are not ridiculous. And the unintended consequences of the incandescent band were ridiculous. There's so many incandescent light bulbs out there that there's no LED to replace them for. You ha it was absolutely the right choice to get rid of the regulation, but then the right regulation would be then to replace that with a precision regulation that got rid of 97% of all incandescent lights just of this certain type, which is 97% of it. But the reason the law was thrown out was because of 3% that we actually need. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a, there's a, it's a tough nut. It's a tough nut, Chris, but uh, yeah. I could talk about lighting all day long. I appreciate your time. Chris, thank you for being a guest on the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Chris.
A million hours in business. That's right. Go to K-U-R-T-Z-O-N.com. Lighting the Anthropocene. I don't know if they want to hear that, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a fun one. Uh, but the Kurtzon, uh specification grade, as you mentioned, clean room and containment, medical, behavior health, food processing, wet location, vandal resistant, hazardous location, anti-ligature, dark room, anti-ligature. Come on, man. Who else does that? And who else has been in lighting for over 100 years? Is there anybody? Million, uh, Thomas Edison. But we know Kurtzon has. But other than <laughs> yes. that, but I don't even, they're yeah. not in the game anymore. So you got to go to K-U-R-T-Z-O-N.com. That's Kurtzon.com. A million hours in the lighting business. Come on, son. You know what you're going to do. Three generations, I think. Yeah. Andrew Long-term Koch company. coming out hot just for you. And, of course, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. 19th to 23rd in Biloxi, man. We're going to get it on. Because we don't get along. We got to get down there and we got to talk it all out, figure everything out, and decide whether or not we're going to continue to sell wall packs or not. Come on, man. <laughs> I'm still selling wall packs every day, unfortunately, Chris. It is what it is. It's going to take government regulation, Greg. Otherwise, at least until April, if we change it at the nailed convention, then maybe we'll we come should on have a vote on everyone. it. Maybe we should have a vote on it. I mean, we <laughs> just want to stop a... selling wall packs? <laughs> no, no one. Every, you know, that's a problem. That, that's where the right. problem lies. Like, yeah, you're right. We like, I think Alan Karen said it best with it with legacy product. When we were, we were down in Long Island, we're talking to him, and he's like, "Who am I to say what someone should use or not use? That's not my job. Mm-hmm. My job is to sell light bulbs to the people who want light bulbs. Give right? them what they and want. They have the and they have their own reasons. And and, and you know, I agree 100 percent with Alan. I know you do as well. From the distributor mm-hmm. perspective, it's not our job. It's not our job to tell people what lights to use and what lights they shouldn't use and what's ethically and morally wrong. How dare you speak like as a, if one of my lighting guys came back and said, yeah, I'm like, you know what? We didn't get the deal. You know why? The asshole wouldn't go dark sky. So I told him to F off. <laughs> right. Like, what are you talking about? How not come you didn't have two proposals on the table? Dark sky and non-dark sky. Yes. Give him that one. Let's go. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, come on, man. Yep. Come on, you gotta, you gotta you offer them both. If he wants to go non dark sky, give him non dark sky. Not our problem. It's got to be government regulation. It has to be done by government regulation. There's no way out of it. That's right. I'm with you. I think that's the only option for it, for sure. Thanks for listening, folks. Always a pleasure to have you guys listening to this and gals out there and all of our groupies. We love you. <laughs> <laughs> groupies. <laughs> Written on the rectory wall, there's a sign there for all. You are lost, Lord is there to find you.